My name is Sai and I'm at RedPoint investing primarily in, in B2B software with a focus on developer-oriented business. I'm very excited to be chatting with Sean Wang today about the importance of developer relations for any company selling to developers. You know, we find that several developer companies we work with today are hiring for DevRel leaders and oftentimes this function gets overlooked early on or maybe not built out soon enough. So today we'll talk a little bit more about how to structure and measure a world-class DevRel organization for any startup. And, and why it's so important to a company's overall health. So I'm lucky to be joined today by Sean, who is the head of developer experience at Temporal. Sean, do you want to briefly introduce yourself and Temporal? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I am Sean, <laughs> or Swix Online as well. I guess my DevRel ex experience starts at Netlify, where I was the second DevRel hire, and we grew from about 30-ish people when I joined to about 150. And... I think something like 300,000 developers to 1.5 million. And, and then we, and then I left in 2020 to go to Amazon, where I spent a year working at Amplify and thinking about AWS level branded DevRel. And we can talk about what it's like to work at, you know, a, a series B to C stage company DevRel versus a big company DevRel. And then... I joined Temporal this year in, in February to head up developer experience. And we're a series A company focused on microservice orchestration, which is a bundle of words, <laughs> but basically we're reinventing asynchronous programming. And if that doesn't hook your interest, I don't know what will. So I'm happy to talk more about that. <laughs> awesome. So, so Sean is the, is the guy to speak with in, in terms of uh, structuring and, and starting out in, in DevRel. So Sean, I, I guess starting with the basics here, you know, many people wrote in asking for clarity around the DevRel role. So, so in, your, in your mind, what, what is DevRel and the various roles and responsibilities? In what is DevRel and the various roles and responsibilities? Okay, that's a very big question. So... DevRel, I think, is essentially, for a lot of people, is essentially rebranded marketing because wow. developers don't like to be marketed to. Every time you hire a professional marketer and you get them to talk at developers, their eyes glaze over and they're turned off by your marketing buzzwords and your emphasis on benefits over features because you refuse to talk about how things work because marketers don't know how things work because they're not technical. You hire developer relations because developers want to be spoken to by other developers and they want to be explained on how to use things why, and, and not to be handheld too much, to do some handholding, but not to do too much handholding that you restrict their creativity. Because I think some of the best DevRel programs have often just said, we can't wait to see what you build, which is a very cliched term in DevRel, oh. but it is actually is pretty true. Uh, if you talk to the early Twilio DevRels, they just held hackathons and they're like, we're a communications layer. Wow. What can you come up with? And they are often impressed in a lot of their new product direction comes from the, the stuff that developers want to take their product in. And so DevRel is very much of a bottom developer first marketing effort. And I personally segment the growing subspecialties of DevRel into three, se three segments, which is community, content, and product. The reason I add products in there, which is not a very common thing to, to emphasize with DevRel, is because developer relations has a background or backstory as developer evangelism, which is kind of the old Microsoft slash Google name for it, which is essentially you hire professional influencers to travel the world and give talks. And it's very us to the rest of the world. Like I'm preaching 
the good word, which is very nice uh, because a good talk and a good useful demo or a good you know explanation is is actually very important. But there's not much of a two-way street, so it's very it's very like us coming out to them, and I think now people understand that they want their devrels in front of their company in front of developers and it, they talk to them so much that we can actually use that product feedback to feedback into the development of the actual product itself that's the vision that's the that's what a lot of people say that devrel is a two-way street developer evangelism is a one-way street in practice it's more like 99 outbound anyway and one percent inbound the reason being that no one has time for your product feedback. Everyone has their own product roadmap. You're not part of the PM org. You're not part of the engineering org. Who are you that I have to listen to you? So people are still figuring this out. But I think the content and community pieces of DevRel are a bit more developed. Totally, 100% agree. And you mentioned this in the beginning, but I think it's, it's important to flush out the difference between developer advocacy and DevRel and, and for marketing. I, I think oftentimes those, those, those two, those two topics get confused with each other. So, so yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that is, that's important for any startup that's starting out, that it, this is a separate organization. Hopefully. Well, so there's there, that kind of leads us into a natural segue of where does DevRel report to, <laughs> which you can have that conversation. Um, I'm not sure that it's a solved question yet. I think a lot of people are converging on the consensus that DevRel should report into product. And I think that's fine, but I'm also, I don't judge people where DevRel reports into marketing. I don't judge people when DevRel reports into engineering or, you know, at, at Netlify, we were a separate org. We were separate from products, separate from engineering, separate from marketing, and we reported up to the CEO. And it matters basically as a founder or, you know, or based on company direction, how important your DevRel is. Uh, your DevRel function is, how senior your DevRel leader is, and also how you measure them. Because at the, at the end of the day, even if your DevRel team reports into product, but the way you measure them is entirely marketing metrics, like how many hits did you get to a front page, then they are a marketing team. It walks like marketing, talks like marketing, they are marketing, even though they technically you put them in your org chart under the product team. So be very careful about just play, playing at like <laughs> making your DevRel org, you know, part of product, but not actually, because that leads to some interesting tensions between what it means to be a representative for your company and how that actually leads to tangible impacts for your business. So yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and even before, you know, get, getting into building, you know, DevRel, I guess like what, what are some tips that, you know, any early stage startup or founder that's in a, a develop, that is selling to develop, what are some tips that they should know when getting started? You know, I, I guess, what are some lessons learned from, from your time at Temporal? How early stage are we talking? Let's say Series A, you know, you've just raised some capital, you know, you're scaling to the Series B, you're selling to developers, developers is, is your core bread and butter, you know. I guess what yeah. are some I think some amount of focus and regular cadence is important. So yeah. Uh, so at, at a point of series A, you like you have some form of products, like you you have been around enough that you that you raise your seed and, and you, you convince people to invest in series A. Um, yeah. that's probably where you should start hiring, you know, a, a DevRel team. Like we hired two I you know, I came on in February and then we hired two DevRels this year. And I think that's where you start trying to figure out what the public story is you want to tell. 
because you have some core base of early adopters, but you need them to not just, you know, not just grow into like the early majority, which I, I love to use this model of crossing the chasm. And I wow. like to say that my personal specialty is helping developer tools cross the chasm, which is a very yeah. profitable specialty if you can actually yeah. do that repeatedly. But yeah, so you, you need to start basically like kind of start building a machine of like, here's what, here's our collateral that we, here's a typical story, like our, our one sentence pitch, our five minute pitch, our 10 minute pitch, our 20 minute pitch, and our one hour pitch. And you need to kind of market among different sets of audiences and figuring out what kinds of audiences, like how to qualify these audiences immediately so that you can go down you know, between two to three different talk tracks that are usually relevant. Because the reason I say two to three talk tracks is because I'm not a strong believer that there is one marketing message to rule them all, because a lot of developer tools companies are horizontal companies and they can be used in multiple different ways. And the things, the words, the influencers, the concepts that appeal to different audiences vary based on their own background so you need to figure out like what what the what that fit is and then i think for me like the most important thing to establish at this early stage is the developer journey like what like yes you probably have at series a stage you probably have a working product you're probably building more features that are going to take you to the next level and your product is pretty dense already and probably a lot of people barely even scratch the surface. That's what everyone says, right? Like, <laughs> uh, it's a little bit depressing as a DevTools founder to build a bunch of features and then like people just use you for like the bare minimum, uh, yeah. which that's, that's, that's just how it is. Uh, a lot of people don't have time for anything more than the, the core. So first of all, your core value proposition needs to be really good. But second of all, you need to guide them through the rest of your product to see how awesome it is so that it can grow in usage and tell other people. So that I termed the developer journey. What should people land on your landing page and I and they're like, okay, like my friend said, this was cool. I'm going to come check it out, but I only have five minutes. What are you going to give them in those five minutes? Are you going to dump your entire feature set? Are you going to give them a hello world that is trivial? That is that they could do in a weekend? Like what is the, what's the wow moment that you're really trying to deliver? And, and what's the open question that you're trying to leave in their mind so that they're not happy with the five minutes and they want more. So I think that's something I think about a lot. And I, I draw a lot of inspiration from game design where it's a progressive review of features and you don't give them that much apart from like, do this and then do that. And then, <laughs> and then go here and then go there. And you have a very strong sense of like what level one, level two, level three looks like. And so that's the journey throughout, through the product. For me, it's about what a core, what the core concepts is, you know, doing a hello world or like, you know, deploying a, deploying a basic app and then building and then branching out into maybe like performance or security or deployments, uh, monitoring, that kind of stuff. Uh, th but that's for us, you know, like, and your, your message could be a bit different. So finally, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about specialties within a, a team. So on, on, at Nellify, we are very focused on front-end developers. So the way that we built out our team was that we had different framework specialists. So I was the React specialist because I'm a well-known speaker in React. And we had Vue, we had Angular, we had, you know, sort of a static site generator specialists. For us at Temporal, uh, we have SDKs in different languages. So we have a Java slash PHP guy, and then we have a Go person, and I'm going to be the TypeScript person. And we'll, we'll have Python, Ruby, you know, .NET, whatever. You might want to split it up by, by that because there is a certain audience that each of these developer relations people speak to that maybe they're already known in the conference circuit. Like it's super easy for me to get into any 
JavaScript conference. And I think that's that's a that's a home ground or unfair advantage that you should play when building out your DevRel team. It's a bit hard to hire like super well-known people. So sometimes you need to have an eye for trajectory rather than you know, why, rather than, you know, where they are today, because they definitely, Netlify definitely took a bet on me very early on when I was getting started in my speaking career and it paid off for them, but sometimes it doesn't work out. And sometimes you have DevRels who kind of are not that productive, but I think that's where a really good DevRel manager can come in and up-level your individual uh, contributors. So I'll leave it there. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great point. And I think, you know, we'll get, we'll get into this later when we, when we discuss how to actually measure the efficacy of every double organization, but you, you have a great way of thinking about it. You know, I think in the seminar, we said something to the extent of there are four pillars of developer relations. And I think that is, that's, that's a company like HashiCorp where they have, you know, they're much later stage. They're not a series A or series B startup. And I think, you know, they bring it into education, community events and audience, but you know, that's just not realistic for a series A or series B startup that's just starting out. And I think you just have a great framework for this by just asking, what kind of DevRel are you? I think you get, as you mentioned, you have those three emerging subspecialties of DevRel, the community focus, the content focus, and product focus, just asking that very basic question in the beginning, I think will go a long way. Yeah, I think so too. So, I mean, since we're on Zoom, uh, can I screen share the, the visual just so we, so that, so the audience members can actually see what we're talking about. So what Sai is talking about is this four pillars thing from the previous session with Adam at HashiCorp. And I mean, you know, there are series, what, F or E company. Yeah. <laughs> and I would, yeah, I would love to have an education team, you know, especially former teams are really good. Every time I see a former, you know, someone who actually has done teaching in like a public school setting or, or something, crossover into developer education, they're amazing at it. A formal events team, amazing, fantastic, you know. But I, I you know, I think these require fairly large, large budgets and have a very long payoff cycle. Whereas I think maybe a lot of earlier stage companies are more focused on community advocacy and audience, right? Um, so my, the way I break it down is a little bit simpler. I, and for the record, like I, I had seen this before, but like I just kind of made up, made this up based on, the people that I know. So like I have like certain yeah. archetypes in mind when I look at these things. And that's kind of how I, I view it, right? Like at the end of the day, all everyone wants is monthly active developers. Let's not screw around. Like that is the source of truth for where DevRel kind of feeds into the, the rest of the value equation for a startup. There are certain specialties for people. Like some people are not that great at content. You know, they're, they, they don't produce like especially inspiring blog posts or, or talks or anything but look they're charismatic as hell you know that they they just know everyone who's anyone so they're community devrels you know whereas some people are just like thought leaders they're just you know they just can chunk out like amazing and visually appealing and just like fantastic stuff but they're maybe you know and and so maybe it should be applied there and then others like they can they're, they're sort of more quiet but they are very insightful they understand like the core user insight that like people, you know, when they aggregate a lot of feedback from people, they can really sort of channel that into a, a very strong sense of product feedback. So I like this. And I like that for me, the most impactful time as a DevRel on product was on product launches. So really focusing on like making a launch successful by being the first beta user internally within a company of a product and just being brutally honest. Like if you cannot pay someone to be brutally honest at you, then you don't have an intellectually honest culture. And then, but then also like making the demos and making the, the collateral and, and the, the storytelling that will make your launch successful. And a really good launch, you can't really emphasize it enough. <laughs> 
to to really help you. So I'll, I'll leave it there. I don't I want to like spam people with with too much, but I can I can talk a bit about in turn about each of these specialties. No problem, and we'll get in, we'll get more into that when we when we get into measuring measuring the efficacy. But I guess you know you mentioned you know after Series A, maybe even after your seed, but it, it seems that there isn't a black and white answer in terms of at what stage in a company's growth journey should it consider building a DevRel team. But it, it seems that you know it may wear it may be different from company to company, but generally it's when. You you're starting to, you have a product out in market and you're starting to get developers to start paying for it. Was there a question in there? I mean, I agree. <laughs> uh, just, just general comment. And I guess for temporal, when did when did they they hire you? And and when did you know when, when did they start thinking about it? Was it after the Series A? Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Right after Series A, they they started reaching out to me, and I I said no at first, and then I said yes. So <laughs> that's the short history. Cause like I just joined Amazon and I was like, I was, I was very, I was very ready to rest and invest for four years essentially, but like, <laughs> but like, yeah. you know, I, I think when you, when a rocket ship comes along and something that you fundamentally feel at, at your core has been missing all this while, I think, yeah, I totally. think you should take the leap. Totally. And you, you were getting into this earlier before, but the question of who should that role report up to it, I mean, ultimately it touches multiple facets of the business product, marketing, customer success. So. I guess there is no black and white answer there as well. There's no black and white, but I think most people agree on products. They just don't act it. You know, it's one thing to like, all right, move some uh, people around on your org chart and just say, okay, you're under product now. And then job done, right? But then your metrics haven't changed. Your OKRs are all marketing. Totally. So what, what does it mean to belong in products, but then you measure them like marketing? That you just you're just treating them like a marketing team, and they're a very expensive affiliate marketing team. For a lot of people, that's how it is. Like at you know at you know fill in previous company, we counted our Google UTM tag attribution, right? Like oh okay, I drove ten thousand visits to our blog this month. Um, you can pay for that way cheaper <laughs> elsewhere. You can pay you know for inorganic search. You can pay for like you know there has to be something else that your DevRels are giving you because otherwise they're just very, very expensive affiliate marketers. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Awesome. You know, I, I, I want to make sure we, we hit on community and the importance of community here oh, yeah. in uh, a strong developer relations org. Sean, you run communities on the side. You also own community at Temporal. I guess why why invest in community, you know, in the first place? You, you have a great post here, but, uh, you know, the audience would love to hear. So I, I guess someone will share uh, the post, but... Um... So I'll give, I'll give my community credentials for people who don't know. So I got started in the New York tech scene where I was very much in person, just getting to know everybody at every single meetup. And then I moved online where I was the moderator for the r slash React.js subreddit. And we grew that subreddit from 20,000, 30,000 people to 220,000 people before I left. And then I started Svelte Society from scratch. And now that was about a year and a half ago. And now we're at about 11,000 people. And then I wrote a book where I run a paid community for the book. That's about 2,000 people. And then for Temporal, I run the community events and forums and stuff like that. And when I say I run, I mean, with a lot of help from actually other people who actually know way more than me. <laughs> so I'm just like kind of the coordinator. It's pretty, it's pretty funny because like at Temporal, I'm like, one of the least technical people <laughs> there, which uh -huh. is just a very unusual position for me. Anyway, so that's my community background. And obviously I, I have a lot of friends in the community manager space, Rosie Sherry or the Orbit Love people, Comsor and yeah, Matt Redden from, 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 
the, all these all these community founders. Like it's a very hot topic right now. Okay, why community? Basically, it's the it's the it's your users <laughs> that are identifying with your company, and a lot of community forums, a lot of company community forums are glorified support channels, right? Like it's just, hey, you know, you don't like answering questions on Stack Overflows. All right, I'll come to your custom discourse deployment and ask questions to you, but it's basically Stack Overflow. And what you really want is your users talking to each other. What you really want is your users hiring each other. What you, you really want is your users building on top of you because they believe that you're, you're here to stay. And they expect that their association with you will outlast their current employment. The problem with this is good luck fitting any of this in an OKR that is measured quarterly because community is a relationship-based long-term goal rather than a short-term <laughs> transaction. But I mean, I think people are understanding that at least for developer tools, the strength of the community is very important for crossing the chasm. And I think a lot of people realize that when they cross the chasm, like early adopters don't need community. They just need the tool to work. They just need to like, they don't even need like that great of a docs. They don't need like a functioning or vibrant job market for that technology. They just need to understand that the tool works and they can use it to solve problems that they have. But once you get into the mass market, the majority, then people start deciding on like, hey, I picked uh, the TensorFlow community because that, that community is really great at, at, at helping beginners. And it's got, it's got plugins and resources for everything that I could possibly want. That's, those are not core to the technology, but there are a lot of the reason why people pick technologies, which is they, there's a strong community. And I think to invest in that is a very, very long-term game, but it's a, it's a moat as well because everything else about your technology can be clones or I'll compete it, but a community is very, very hard to dislodge. Yeah. And I think you, you have a great point there that community is, is a feature that cannot be copied and it itself is a moat for you and helps you gain these network economies. I think you, you elegantly structure that in your, in your post. That, that's awesome. There's a, uh, there's a VC out there. I'm, I'm really, I'm really sad that I'm blanking on her name because she wrote a really great blog. I refer to her in my own blog post on technical community uh, builders. So, so please go check her out, but I'll, I'll give you the thesis of the blog post, which is previously, or like traditionally community was like the community manager at, at Netlify was kind of like lowest on the totem pole. You know what I mean? Like they would be going through the forums and seeing like, okay, like this person asked the question three days ago, it hasn't been answered. Please, can anyone in the company help answer this question? That is such a pathetic, like, I mean, you know, they were great, but like that, that just shows that the company doesn't value community, right? It, when, when, when that is, that kind of behavior is, is around. But then also the community experience or, or someone's interaction with the company is very fragmented. Like yeah. on the forums, I'll be interacting with the support team in, in, in conferences. I'll be interacting with the DevRel team in webinars. I'll be interacting with the marketing team in sales conversations. I'll be interacting with the sales team. It's a very disparate thing. And I'll, there's no sort of central, um, I guess, CRM <laughs> to, yeah. to, to, to manage like the interactions, but also I think more, more, more to the point who in the C-suite or who in the VP suite is responsible for community. And who's managing that journey through, you know, uh, through your company? I, I think, as I think as community goes from periphery to core, then a lot of things start deriving their insights from community. Like instead of having community be the afterthought 
of like, hey, we launched this product. Let's now go support it in the community forums. Like actually go engage community users in the forums and help to derive product insights or, you know, or beta test with like a super user community, which is some, which is a topic I really like as well. Like the the idea that every every company, like I'm I'm a part of a few super user programs like GitHub Stars, Stripe Community Experts. I, I I am blanking on on some of the others, but we're looking into establishing our own as well because it was very very helpful for basically not just like recognizing some experts within the community, but also giving them preferential access as a way to say thank you. And, and I think, I think it's just a, a very, it's a win-win proposition all around for your most engaged users. Yeah. And, and, and Sean, you're wearing multiple hats from all your, your community <laughs> developer experience. Does this community eventually become a separate role within, within DevRel? Let's say you get to that stage. Uh... On that. I haven't seen it personally myself, but yeah, I've, I've seen some companies basically have a head of community or VP of community yeah. or chief, com- chief community officer is also a title that I've seen thrown around, but it takes time, you know, uh, it, it takes, it takes the right person to lead that. And so I don't have a sense either way of like when the right time is, cause I haven't been through that myself, but I would love to see it. I would love someone uh, at the highest level to say, I represent the user and, and, and not, and this is very, by the way, this is very true for open source dev tools. I represent the free user who never pays us a single cent, but contributes so much intangible value in terms of code, in terms of content, in terms of like just buzz around, around the tool. And sometimes that, that person is just not represented in meetings, you know, that, that free user. So yeah, I, I, love, I love for that to happen. Right now, a lot of that falls on DevRel's laps. And that's a, that's a job that we need to just formally recognize that we do. And I think that's, that's fine. Yeah. Awesome. So the, the $1 million question here, I guess, what, what are your recommendations for, you know, kickstarting a community, you know, especially oh, at yeah, Temporal, yeah. you guys have done a great job, you know, in, in, in just a, in, in a year or so, like, what are some recommendations? So first of all, I don't think we've, I think we can do better. Let's yeah. just leave it at that. I, I, you know, I, I'm the sort that is just never happy. And I want to acknowledge uh, someone in the Q and A, uh, James Lloyd. Yes, I think that's Lisa Shi. I haven't personally connected with her, but I have. I think I think her post for like drawing, like sort of community led growth. I think is a is a very core insight that I think a lot of founders should have a good think about, if not actually implement. So so recommendations you said right. Two things. Like, I think obviously there's, there's the, there's this standard stuff, like have a Slack, have a Discord. By the way, Slack versus Discord, if you're open source and maybe sort of more indie, go Discord. If you're more enterprisey, go Slack. That's just how it is. I don't love Slack either, but that's just how it is. (laughs) And then, so the two recommendations are this, like one, um, events are underrated for community. So you saw how in the HashiCorp four pillar thing, events were a different team than community. But I think at a smaller stage, those are the same thing. People need gathering points. And this is about the temperature of your community as well. You need to manage your temperature. It's not always hot, but there's hot and cold and you need to make sure that the hot hot moments are really good. (laughs) And when I'm not kidding around when I talk about temperature. So for the sort of communication or media theorists in the room, you should refer to Marshall McLuhan, who talks about hot media and cold media. And I think it's very, very true that there, there are a lot of community engagement forums, which are cold, and then there's some community, community engagement methods that are hot. And you probably want a variation of these things. So Slack is, uh, so Slack is one of those interesting ways in which uh, a cold can sort of upgrade to warm, but a hot you know, event would be, a, would be a meetup, right? Like a conference. And that's something that I think really helped 
Netlify kicked it, kick it off. Like uh, we launched the conference when we weren't sure if we could sell out, sell out the seats, but we did. And then, you know, we went from one conference a year to three conferences a year. And that just really helps kick it off because once people have shown up and they start talking to each other and they have no choice, but they're kind of, they, they're kind of committed to like being in a room with you for like one or two days and like sitting through a bunch of vendor presentations. <laughs> it's such just a really powerful thing. And, and oh, by the way, getting your users on stage to talk about how proud they are of using your product. Amazing. Right. Yeah. So events are super underrated for <laughs> you want to if you want to get good at community, get good at events, because then people have a reason to, to come show up and, and join you. Um, but also there, there's a bunch of people who will just never participate. So you need to be decent at, at cold outreach as well. What is cold or what is, you know, it's basically building a distri distribution channel. It's basically the, the stuff that you imagine, like a mailing list, like a Twitter presence, like a YouTube presence. I think those are the main channels that I focus on and obviously blog posts that, that drive in top of funnel. The, the second part, which I really like to talk about community, which is underrated, I think, is content. Content is the minimum viable community mm. in the sense that, all right, you, you know, you have your products and it's kind of like it exists and people can use it. But really good blog posts will drive people from Hacker News straight onto your community. And they want to talk about your blog posts and give them a place to talk about it. Right. So that's kind of how I drive my own writing community. That's how I think if you look at like basically the, the playbooks of the independent creators out there, they're writers first or they're YouTubers first, and then they have a community attached to them. And the community aggregates around their writing or, or content, but then they spread out from there. But at least it's a reason to, to show up uh, that is not about asking for support. And once once they see a place to promote themselves or actually, you know, get into related conversations that are about what you stand for rather than just about using you, then you have a vibrant, like a self-sustaining community where people just show up because they know that's where they're going to get good feedback and responses. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And, and I guess the point here in terms of finding someone to drive your community, I think you, you have a great post here on, on that technical community builder. You would love to just double click there and what you mean by that. <laughs> finding content? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, at a bare minimum, just curation is really nice. So if you think about like the big newsletters in the tech industry, like software lead, weekly, you know, pointer, there, there's a bunch of these, like basically aggregation blog posts, but curated by someone fairly knowledgeable. And that can be enough. Like you don't have to write the content. You can just aggregate it. And that's, that's still a form of content creation. Um, so maybe someone to start there is, is good enough because writing original content that, that's a hit after hit is, is a fairly tall ask. Like I write a blog post a week and I only get one hit a year. That's how bad it is, right? Like <laughs> that's how bad I am. But, but also like, that's just how brutal the content industry is. And at the, at the end of the day, like well, all you're trying to do is provide a space for people to come to, to connect with other professionals who are solving the same problems. Right. Like, yeah, we, we had a question come in here. I'm going to weave it in because it's relevant to the community section. It's, it, it goes, what, what if you have a great team of devs and devrels, but they don't necessarily want to run social um, for the company? So the company developer handle is run by an actual social team that doesn't necessarily have the developer chops. And so any, any tips for the not dev teams or, or per se the social teams running dev communities, or should you just, you know, maybe look otherwise uh, elsewhere and get a technical community builder, as you say? Oh, okay. Social, I think it's okay. So by the way, for, for those who don't know, like the post for my, my blog post on technical community building was actually making a case for why your community 
manager should be technical rather than non-technical. Obviously, wow. that's a more expensive hire, but uh, I think it does pay off because people, uh, it, it really helps when developers understand that the person they're sitting across from actually gets what they're trying to do and can connect them with the resources or the people that they need to get stuff done or you know, just have mutual shared interest in. But social media, if you have a social professional, uh, you know, professional social person, I haven't worked with those, I'll be honest. So I don't know what it's like. I mean, I I know I've, I'm, I'm friends with Rob or Gallo Boob as, he, as he's known on Reddit and Twitter. And he's a professional social media guy. And um, he's funny as hell and people follow him for that. If that's the brand that you're building, more power to you. But sometimes that's not the brand that you're building. and And you need to make a conscious choice of like, is this some is this like yeah you're getting a lot of internet points for your social media person's output but is that anything relevant to what you're trying to build as a business uh, and if it's not you got to cut it if, if it is then then great so I, I i don't want to say like so I'm, I'm an investor in a company called superbase and they're amazing at meme marketing but that's just the founders who love developer memes it's not a separate social team so i i haven't worked with a separate social team to to understand how to work best with them to to really give you a good feedback there super nice is great i love that i love their memes as well i guess okay so let's say you, you have a couple of folks in the devrel or you know you're starting to build community you're, you're driving that forward um the the question that we that that was most asked you know before the seminar is just measuring your devrel efforts and then and you already flashed that slide sean and you you shared your north star metric but you know people continue to talk about how hard it is to measure devrel so you know would love to hammer the point of just why you know monthly active developers is should be your north star metric you know would love to double it's 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 the one that keeps you honest right because you're trying to grow usage at the end of the day and you there's you know, you could measure monthly active deployments or monthly active clusters. And so, by the way, if you're hosting platforms, this is a very relevant question. If someone deploys on you and just hosts on you and but never touches, never logs in, but you know, they're, they're still getting value from your site. They're still paying you. Is that a monthly active developer, right? The definition of monthly active developer is uh, up for grabs as well. Uh, what most people who I talk to who are in the hosting business agree on is that if they're not developing their sites, then they're not active. So, so be more brutally honest with yourself. Like, are you delivering enough features or are you getting the kind of developers who are growing usage? And if they are, they should be constantly in, in your dashboard kind of tweaking stuff. Like it's, it's kind of like in how, in how consumer apps, like, you know, the people want to build a recurring habit of coming back to you at least once a week, if not daily. And for developers, that's more probably like at least monthly, if not weekly. So there should be some kind of recurring behavior. But monthly active developers, basically you want to land within uh, more and more different logos, and then you want to expand within those different logos. And monthly active developers is like the one metric that kind of covers that, right? So you're not, you don't just want to do evangelism, but then you also want to make sure that people don't churn off. And you also want to make sure that people are growing within within the within the companies that they they land in. So I think that kind of covers all of it. Yeah. You know, it's especially hard, especially for open source, because developers are very touchy about telemetry. But as long as the contract is clear and and you're you're you know steadfastly just only measuring activity and not identity, I think people are fine with that. Okay, so the one thing one thing I'll say as well is that like that that is obviously the, the point where you know sales can take over and and start looking for leads and, and and all that. So that most directly translates to money. The reason I do not stare at like I don't know what my MAD is 
on a month to month or even a quarterly to quarterly basis. I just I just need to know if it's like up. <laughs> as long as it's like up, it's fine. Like I will have good months, I'll have bad months. Some of it will be driven by product launches, some of it just by seasonality or whatever. It's very hard to control. It's a lagging indicator. And so you need to complement it with a leading indicator. In fact, a bunch of leading indicators. And that's the way I set it up, right? You have one lagging indicator that's the source of truth and then a bunch of leading indicators that should correlate in the long run with the lagging indicator. So the leading indicators depend on your, your devrel efforts, ranging from community activity to your uh, content you know, views and your, your distribution channel growth, like emails, subscribe, subscriptions, and YouTube and all that, to your product metrics on, on launch days and, and NPS scores. <laughs> what, and, I, and I guess you know, to, that, to that point, what are some metrics that you shouldn't necessarily care about as much, the vanity metrics, the bad metrics per se? Yeah, I have a, I, I think I might get in trouble for saying some of this because officially uh, GitHub Stars is one of our OKRs for, as a company for Temporal, okay. but I don't like it. It's it's so it looks so sad to beg for a star. Like people should want to star you anyway. And then when people star you, they don't they're not using you at all. They're they're just starring you because they're throwing you a bone. So it's just so meaningless that basically the only time GitHub Stars convert into real value is when someone is just completely naive about how this works and they're just like, wow, it's 20,000 stars. It looks amazing. And, and also there's also like the trending page, right? Like, which is, if you get on there, some people do discover projects through the trending page on GitHub. What else have I said? Oh, I have been asked at conferences to scan badges. We're going to KubeCon and like, you have to pay for like the device thingy to like scan a badge for customers. I don't think those ever work. <laughs> First of all, it like cheapens the interaction between you and them. They're just like, okay, yeah, I'm just a business card to you. And then second of all, following up is super hard and, and very leaky. And those aren't good leads. You know, maybe the leads are weak. Maybe I'm weak, you know, <laughs> uh, and we can, we can do all Glenn, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross there. But um, I, I don't, I don't think I don't think the transactional interaction of like, let me scan you into a database on my first interaction with you works very well. So I'll just, I'll just put it there as, as my two cents. I, I, I did it one time and I, I have a permanently negative impression of it. What else did I say? Oh, GitHub, Google Analytics, UTM tag. Yeah, so that one, that one I, I have been measured by as well. And I mean, yeah, I, I, the, the problem with that one is that it, it biases you towards writing uh, superficial top of funnel, like super top of funnel that may not have content that may not actually have anything to do with the business itself. Like as long as it's funny, as long as it's uh, controversial, as long as it's, it, it, it buys you, buys you towards the wrong thing. Like in, 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 the, in the worst ways of like how, it, how the Twitter algorithm or the Facebook algorithm biases you towards clickbait. And then finally NPS. I don't love NPS, even though I just, I did mention NPS just now. I know, I understand that it's an industry standard and I understand that, you know, everyone understands that it's a flawed metric, but it's so flawed. <laughs> and particularly developers implement NPS. Like <laughs> I've been on the side where I've been asked to, to implement an NPS. Like, everyone knows how this works and everyone knows that you don't care. You throw out the seven, you count the eight, nines and tens and you, you know, so like, what are you really measuring? What insights are you really getting? Like I much rather have narrative insight rather than an arm's length. Like, am I doing, you know, approval rating essentially of, of my of my job because I don't think that actually gives me much actionable insight apart from things that are trending up or down, which I already have with monthly active developers. Yeah. This is a question that came in by the way, and it's relevant to the metrics conversation. But let's say you're the DevRel, DevRel reports up to product. What are what are some good metrics there? 
that that you should that you should care about. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is the thing I haven't personally figured out that much. So what what I wrote is what I believe that I that makes sense for running DevRel, which is community content and then product is like a, a third wheel. Product is one of the things that we're still figuring it out. How do you think product should be measured? <laughs> users, launch users. I don't know. I think, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. <laughs> so there's a lot of philosophy of what product is, which varies from company to company. And that's an unsolved question. And then there's the philosophy of metrics, uh, how you think you should measure the thing. And then we're, we're doing like so many back shots here. Then, then you're like, how should DevRel reporting into products should, should be measured, right? Like th this is like three tiers down of unexamined core beliefs that you, that we haven't really figured out yet. So that's why, I mean, I keep it too tangible related to the, the activities that we're doing, feeding into the, the one lagging metric, which keeps us honest because we can monetize it. Awesome. You know, I, I, I know we only have 10 minutes left here. I do want to touch on the last point, which is just hiring, you know, temporal, they lucked out on, on finding you, where are some other folks like you, you know, if you were, you were just starting to hire folks for a devil organization, where, where would you look? Jeez. Yeah, this is a tough one. So yeah, by the way, I get maybe three calls a week from founders asking about how to hire their first DevRel, which is like, it's so amazing to me because like, I, I kind of lucked into the job and then, you know, I, I randomly now have a reputation for it, but it's so amazing to me that this is something that's in demand because like, it seems like a, a fun job that everyone should want. What I usually say is try to think of the ideal user that you have that you would most like to clone and hire that person because what a DevRel is essentially going to end up doing is cloning themselves by everything that they do in their community and every content that they, that they write. They're essentially going to put out signals that, hey, this is a place that I believe in and if you're like me, you should join me. And that's obviously, you know, has problems for diversity, but also we'll, we'll, we'll sort of leave that as a separate topic. It's hard because when I say that, Typically, your the users that you would most like to clone is also your most ideal customer. So you don't want to poach your DevRel from your customer. Sometimes, oftentimes, it, that ends up happening anyway because usually the customer, you know, the, the person is a champion at the customer. They implement it successfully, and they're off to the races. And then, then the person probably believes in your company more than they believe in the, the company that they work at. So they leave to join you. And that's how, that's how it happened for us and for our first DevRel hire. So yeah, I mean, that's very natural and very organic. And if it happens, great for you. If, you have, if you're struggling to get that, then I completely understand. One thing I like to say actually is maybe you don't like, especially if you're like pre-series A. So I, I talked to a lot of super, like seed stage founders because I'm an angel investor. If you're pre-series A, like you may want to make sure that at least your founder, you know, your CEO, CTO can be effective DevRels in themselves. Mm. So if, if you can't do it, why you, what do you expect that so you can hire someone else who, who, who can do as good a job or better? Like, yes, they, they, they could probably do a better job if they're, they're like an experienced speaker, experienced DevRel, whatever. But if you cannot be a, per, if you personally, as the founder, as, as like someone in the C-suite, cannot do a good job of evangelizing for your company, then you haven't figured it out. You, you haven't figured out like the, the core message to pass on to your DevRel to, to execute on. So make sure that you, you've, you've done the, the job first because you, you're also part of the DevRel team as a founder. <laughs> like it or not, right? You're the most credible one too. And the one with the most power to fix anything that comes up. So maybe don't, like if you're struggling to hire your first DevRel, maybe uh, don't hire like someone who's, you know, already an established DevRel who comes from a different community, because if you try that and expect them to transfer their audience to you, 
like npm install it may not work because they don't come from that same mindset they don't have they, didn't, they haven't experienced the same problems as you i much rather take an existing engineer who you know has some skill at, at, at writing posts and stuff and, and train them up because I, I think that devrels are more made than born and that's that's kind of how i phrase it awesome well, Sean, I, I know we have, we have like another five or six minutes. I want to hit on some questions that came in through the audience. There, there was a good one here about how DevRel is different when the product is not specifically for developers, like Salesforce, HubSpot, Oracle, where it's enterprise SaaS, but you still want a developer community using the APIs. How, how is DevRel different there? How, how would you think about it? I haven't worked on that stuff. So... Uh, please, please take this with a grain of salt. I've seen uh, Spotify DevRels at work, <laughs> which is fun. Did you know Spotify has DevRels? And yeah, I, I understand that sometimes you just have a developer. Notion has a DevRel. Yeah, they're, they're, sometimes it's not the core thrust, but you're still in developer community. I think that this, this one's more straightforward in the sense that like, hey, come build a business on top of us, right? Like here are the existing users. Here's the monetization Hopefully there is monetization. Usually a lot of platforms, developer platforms, when they launch, they don't have any monetization figured out, which is super annoying. That's what happened to Alexa, by the way. Um, just a ton of crap because they never figured out monetization. And, and yeah, I mean, basically sell it as a way to reach an audience that, a captive audience that is behind a walled garden that they could not reach otherwise. And here are all the APIs. Here's how seriously we support it. You know, you don't want to be Twitter where... You deprecate APIs every so often so that no one believes in you anymore. And you know, you want to host hackathons, you wanna you wanna show examples of early success. You wanna show, you wanna give your developers an idea of what is most demanded by your community of, of your non-technical users. And then you know, you wanna show the re the revenue potential. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I think Shopify does an amazing job at this. Right. Probably. You don't you don't think of, I mean, I think more Shopify as like a dev focused company, but actually. They're not like they're they're selling it. They're selling basically Rails, <laughs> e-commerce Rails to non-technical e-commerce users, and the developers come along for the ride and, and build out the Shopify ecosystem. Right, that's a very successful dev ecosystem because Shopify has monetization figured out, so people gravitate to where the money is, which is why you know, all right, let's let's apply this to the very app that we're sitting in right now. Zoom launched a dev community with no monetization. Right. There's a whole, there's a bunch of plugins. Maybe you can use them. No one, no one has any idea what they are. You know, that's, that's not going to be that successful. Even though Zoom has a massive, like billions of users audience, you, it's hard to build a company on, on top of it. Like Slack launched the fund companies when they're a certain size, they launch like a creator fund or like a, a startup fund. So like, Hey, come build on top of us. We'll fund you. And like, you know, we'll turn you into like a legit startup. I don't think it, there's, there's been like maybe one successful Slack-based startup, but that's it, you know? So yeah, you gotta really figure out monetization built into the platform. Yeah, totally. Another good question that came through is some of the tool recommendations here, technology for the DevRel stack. I, we've actually been following a company called Orbit.love that I, I believe you're familiar with as well. And, you know, we're, we're calling it almost a de as a DevRel CRM that effectively acts as the operating yeah. system for DevRels and community teams. And any other good ones or is, is Orbit the one? Like Common what, yeah, what would what would your tool stack be if you were to recommend that? So <laughs> it's funny because basically I knew oh, Josh yeah. before he started Orbit, and so I'm reasonably friendly with them. And recently, I actually sat them down for like an hour and just like just like 
unloaded on them on like all the ways that I don't think their product is good enough. So it, it's it's so fun because like when you have to actually use the thing versus like show a pretty dashboard, like it's it's a world of difference. So Orbit's Orbit's at the pretty dashboard stage right now. They need to basically become the de- definitive source of how every Silicon Valley company measures de- their developer community. They're not there yet because they present too many too many numbers essentially. Okay, so Common Room is the other one. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? Oh yeah, Common Room's great. That's a good one. They seem neck and neck. I think Common Room has a, has more focus on the integrations aspects, whereas Orbit is maybe more on just general open source community. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, com- and Common Room seems to have very good enterprise sales for whatever reason. It's super weird. I don't I don't understand it. But yeah, both of these things are are okay. Are are good. Like I don't think they're amazing because they haven't changed my life as a uh, dev community person yeah that's kind of what I, that's kind of what where i leave it you know like i don't i don't have a formal system i think for for sure other people are going to have a formalized crm we run ours in notion it's it's manually tracked not automatically integrated i would love for it to be automatically integrated but also it's not going to materially change my life because i know who my most active users are i know <laughs> you know i know i know who's like you know super active and i know who's falling off like i don't need a machine to tell me that yet um when I maybe you know a much bigger company, maybe like C stage, uh, Series C, probably I'll, I'll want to have that so that I can at least have a shared understanding of reality with my team. But right now, you know, there's three of us. It's fine. <laughs> you guys are doing an awesome job, and and you know we're we're big fans of what you're you're building over there and the community you're building over there. I think we're coming up on time, Sean. Unfortunately, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it off to Travis for now. Yeah, Sean, we've been running these COVID office hour sessions for since, since we all went into lockdown. And I think this was the most engaged audience that we've had of any one of these. And Aww. it was the first time we had in the Q&A a request for how to reach out to you directly. So what's the best way to, to connect with you? Oh, sure. You can find me on Twitter at Swix. I'll, I'll drop it in the chat. Uh, and you can find my sites where I have like a newsletter and more blog posts, all the blog posts you could possibly want at Swix.io. Yeah, great. And what we'll be doing in the recap uh, of this, uh, along with the recording, a number of you asked for that, and uh, we'll be publishing that in our, our recap blog post, as well as we'll just make it an index of all of Sean's blog posts so that you have an easy way to pop to those, so the ones that he referenced, as well as the, uh, the graphic that he put up there.